so glad to, as always, to be worshiping with you tonight. And I, uh, I was thinking about, as, as I was listening to Nate and, and uh, Brenna and Jake share, you know, how, what I, what, how envious I am, and my wife says I shouldn't envy, but how I, 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 I so it's like um, how I wish that I had some way that I had developed some sort of talent, you know? And it's just, it, it's awesome. I, you know, just, I, I just think that's so great to, to be able to, to, you know, I know you guys worked at that. I mean, I know that. I, I don't take that for granted. Um, there's also some talent there that, uh, that I never developed. It took me several years to get through one-year piano. And uh, so we, we, we decided that wasn't a good idea when I was... Uh, uh, when I was growing up, my parents decided it was not worth the money for me to just show up to lessons having not played all week. Um, I did play, but not the piano. Um, so that's free. It uh, has nothing to do with anything I'm going to talk about tonight. It was just my way of finding out whether I'm really comfortable standing here this, this evening. Um, uh, growing up as a third-generation Christian, you think about it now, my grandparents, now they may have been more generations behind that, if you go through my ancestors, they had all, I mean, you go way back and they had all these biblical names. I mean, like Nehemiah, you know, um, Hezekiah. I mean, they had all these wild names back there. So I, I don't know. Maybe it was cool to do that back then. I don't know. Um, but my, my grandfather, you know, but growing up as a, as a third generation Christian has its risks. You know, it really does. You know, those who are first generation, you know, some of you guys are first generation Christians. And, and that's pretty awesome uh, because you're excited. Yeah, I mean, there's just no, you're, you're pumped up about being a Jesus follower. Um, second generation Christians, they're kind of like, mm, you know, they're okay, but, but they're already beginning to kind of wane a little bit in that. And um, third generation Christians are kind of the, the danger spot. Those are the people that just might not get serious about Jesus. I was, as far as I knew, a third generation Christian. Um, as, as, as my grandfather was a preacher, I never met him, by the way. My, uh, my other grandfather was a deacon. And uh, uh, as a kid, it seemed like we went to church all the time. And your kids, actually, some of your kids get that feeling. You know, they're like, oh, church again. You know, well, that's what it seemed like in my life. You know, had to go to church. You know, went to vacation Bible school. I hated vacation Bible school. I'm not, I'm one, I'm, that's my confession for tonight. I hated it. You know, one, I couldn't do the crafts right. You know, the, I, my crafts were disasters. Absolute, you got it, right? You know what I'm talking about. It was a disaster. And, you know, you actually had to interact with other kids, mostly whom I didn't know. Uh, so, you know, I didn't like that because I'm, I'm basically an introvert. Uh, you're thinking, yeah, right, and you're standing up there. Well, that, that's God's sense of humor. And, uh, uh, however, as I grew older, my, you know, my father became disenchanted with church. My father did. And so he began to, he actually dropped out. Uh, he didn't like church, organized religion. Uh, he felt really betrayed by pastors and leaders. Isn't that funny? Where God has brought me. He felt, he felt like they had let him down. Uh, I remember telling him that it wasn't God's fault. It wasn't God's fault what was going on. Or even the church's fault. I suggested he was choosing the church for the wrong reasons. He liked music. Good music. Amen? He liked that good music stuff. I did too, I, but he really liked it. You see, he liked to go to an entertaining music service. 
and be entertained by a message, and to be entertained particularly by music, to get to sing and enjoy that part. But entertainment tends to misrepresent Christ. Entertainment tends to misrepresent Christ. The first followers of Christ would likely be disoriented in our churches. Think about it. If, if you were in that first century, think about that. If you were there and you were to be time transported right here, what would you think? Now, this is not bad. Don't get me wrong. But there'd be a little bit of like, whoa, what's that? They probably wouldn't miss, by the way, the danger of meeting publicly or lack of comfortable seating. You know, they're like, whoa, these are nice. I could do that. Nobody's standing at the door checking to see if they can come take you away and put, nail you to a cross. That's good. Uh, they might actually appreciate the upbeat music. I think they might. And extraordinary child care. You know, got to have it. I mean, that, those things are not something that they would be, oh, no, darn, I don't, I, that's no good. However, I think they would miss something. I think they would miss the real devotion to corporate expressions of Christian faith and trust in Him. Do you hear what I'm saying? I think they would be surprised by our understanding of conversion and the resultant lifestyle of belief. Last week, Pastor Mike brought a, to light the activity of the Holy Spirit as Peter described uh, uh, Jesus' sacrifice. The crowd consisted of a mosaic of cultures related to Judaism of the day. I, I, to me, it's so cool. That's why I think that, that day of Pentecost is so exciting. All these languages being spoken, all of, and miraculously now, being a good Baptist, I have to acknowledge that, don't I? You know, it's there. It's happening. Those of you who get that, doubt it, and the rest of you don't worry about it, okay? Please don't worry about it. The hearers were blown away, though. Get this. The hearers were blown away by their own guilt. The initial result was 3,000 souls added that day. 3,000 souls. And Peter didn't just... Now, this is what I find very interesting. Peter didn't just... Deliver the message and kind of wait for a response. Verse 40, we're going to back up in chapter 2, and I just, just may as well go to chapter 2 as long as you're there. Um, as long as I'm there, you're going to get there. Acts chapter 2, and I, but you back up to chapter, to verse 40, and Mike, you just have to forgive me because i got to hit it. You know, i got to get back there uh, so that we're setting the stage for what takes place. Um, Peter didn't just deliver a message and wait for a response. According to verse 40 in Acts 2, he kept on exhorting them. Right? I knew I was going to need my glasses before too long. He kept on exhorting them, he says. What? Be saying, be saved from this perverse generation. <laughs> I, I want to say that all the time now. I mean, I really do. I'm like, I want to go out there and say, hey, people. You know, somebody yeah, told me that Ready to go out with a sign and say, come on, you know, this is where you want to be. Uh, it's a, be saved from this. Yeah, that's what he said, kept on exhorting them. That means he, kept, he was being winsome and persuasive. And the, the big result wasn't the 3,000 souls. We're kind of like, wow, 3,000 souls. Mike, wouldn't that be great when you preach that 3,000 people came to know Christ? Huh, yeah. 
That'd be awesome, but that's not the big thing here. It was that they were changed lives. They were changed lives. Real conversion results in real devotion to corporate expressions of Christian belief and trust. It, 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 it leads to an ever-expanding impact on our world. And that's where we're going to look at today in, in Acts chapter 2, verse 42 through 47. Let me read that with you today. Let's, you know, I know we don't do this here, but we're going to do it today. I'm going to invite you to stand in honor of God's Word as we read together. Back when, we, when I was a missionary in Russia, we actually stood in, uh, uh, for prayer. That was out of respect for God. I kind of like to stand out of respect for God as we hear from what He has to say to us. Let's, let's read that together. Uh, beginning with verse 42, he says, They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe. And many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. And all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all, as anyone might have need. Day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread, from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. Father, we come before you. Lord, this is your word and we really want to listen to you. Lord, give us wisdom to hear, ears to hear, a heart to hear what you have to say to us today. Your church here in Liverpool Clay, Baldwinsville area, right here in 2013. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. I think the first thing I want you to do is I want you to express your faith. I want you to express your faith through devotion to a corporate life. Now, you might say, oh, well, that's, that's natural for you. You're a church guy. You're a preacher guy. But look, I want you to see what a corporate life is like. You see, Jesus' final commands, look at verse 30, back, back to verse 42. You'll see that, Je I'm sorry, backing up too quick. I'm really going to way back up. Jesus' final commands were to what? Make disciples. Make disciples, right? And be His witnesses. Right? Out of Matthew 28, go to all the world, right, and make disciples of all the nations, right? Make disciples of all people groups, all ethnos, all ethnic groups. And to be his witness in Acts 1.8, he says, he says, you are to be my witnesses here, there, and everywhere. Well, that, that's a liberal tra that translation. That's a Bissell translation, all right? Everywhere you go, you'll be able to, and actually it's an as-you-go thing, so it, it can, that's good enough. Always, everywhere we go, we're His witnesses. At Pentecost, this is the cool thing, both are taking place. Both are taking place. Um, our familiarity, by the way, with a book known as the Bible almost inoculates us from the transforming power of its contents. We have grown accustomed to having this sit on our shelf. 
We can open it up. We can read it. We read it all the time. If you're like me, you read it all the time. And you're just always open it. i got to read some more. You know, it's a good book. But we get kind of inoculated to this transformation. Peter's converts, it says, were devoted to the teachings of the apostles, even without access to the New Testament. They hadn't seen it yet. It hadn't been written. It wasn't there. I mean, I, I, I'm amazed at the instant move in this passage into discipleship. Now ask any pastor, any pastor. I, I haven't found one yet. What is the number one problem in the church today? What's your number one problem in your church today? And they're going to tell you, I, I think almost always, I don't know if there's any case they wouldn't tell me this, unless they weren't thinking. Discipleship. We have no disciples. We have no leaders. They're not rising up. Don't know what to do about that. We're lacking discipleship. In fact, I... Uh, Oops. Almost, almost every report I hear from church planters, and I, I do get a lot of reports from church planters, and almost every one as it lands on my desktop, it says, we need help. We need help with leaders. We need help with how to make disciples. We're trying this, we're trying that, but can you give us some help in making disciples? How strange that would seem to the first century church. They got it. On the first day of Pentecost, immediately they began to devote themselves to the apostles' teaching. They hung on every word of these men. Those words became an integral part of their lives from the start. I told my wife, I'm going to watch the time here, so I've got to be careful where I stray. I've only strayed about 20 times so far from my notes, just so you know. Um, but, uh, but I I'm always amazed when somebody says they have committed their life to Christ, they've decided to be his follower, become a Christian, and they never open the book. The very first thing the earlier disciples did, now they didn't have a book, but they submitted themselves to the apostles' teaching. We want to know everything we can know about this God. We want to have everything we can know about this Jesus. We need to know him. They moved right into, by the way, after that, they moved right into fellowship with one another. And for you Greek buffs, this word is koinonia. You know, I just, some of you guys just like Greek words. I don't. You know, they're foreign to me. But because the church a lot of times uses that when I toss it out there. But here's the interesting thing about this word fellowship or koinonia. It means... <laughs> It means literally joint participation. It does not mean sitting down and eating a meal together, although it, that's fine. But the concept really is, see, we tend to think of eating and chatting together as fellowship. It's not so. It, it, it is joining together in a common 
mission. Joining together in a common mission. When, when Elise and I got married, I, you didn't know I was going to tell, say this today. When we got married, I told her I didn't want us to spend our lives gazing into each other's eyes. Right? That's right. When I proposed to her, I, I, I had lots of loving words for her. And I was gazing into her eyes at the time I proposed to her. I said, but this isn't what I want our lives to be. I want our lives to be looking in the same direction, pursuing the same goals in life. And I, by the way, I wasn't a pastor then. I was a computer programmer. So, so don't think that, that, was, that I was some weird, weird guy like a preacher type or something. But um, that, I believe that that has made a tremendous difference in our 33 years, over 33 years of marriage. The quality of our marriage has been built not on looking in each other's eyes. We do that, don't worry. We're romantic. I can be romantic. But it really, our quality of our relationship has been built on looking towards what God has for us all through our lives. And it's been interesting. Not going to go too far with that tonight. These early disciples actually did eat together, by the way. I, I, know, you were, I know you're relieved, right? <laughs> we really wanted them to eat together because we like to eat. And so together is a good thing. Eat together, eat apart, wherever we like to eat. And uh, sitting at the at table together is one of the most universal signs of closeness. Um, that, now, they didn't. Well, I, first of all, Jesus, by the way, did the same thing, did he not? He spent some of his most significant time with his disciples eating a meal. And that was a good time. They, now, they didn't sit down to a microwave meal in front of a TV either. The normal meal was extended, uh, extended conversations. They, 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 they were meaningful conversations. They had something to talk about. And, and, they, and they would just lay around the table because their tables were down low. You know, the picture of the Lord's Supper, by the way, is fake. It's wrong. We know it's wrong. The, the, the Italian painting, it's just not wrong. There was no table like that. They wouldn't be sitting in chairs. They would have been lounging. They would have been laying out with their feet pointing away from the table, eating at the table, leaning on an arm, because they were going to spend some time together, close, intimate time. Now, it was under that context that, that the setting, setting of the Lord's Supper, when the Lord's Supper was first instituted, why they were, it was pretty serious moments of conversation. Um, it was particular to the, particularly at the Passover. I, I suspect that is the reason for the statement in this passage about their breaking bread daily from house to house, breaking bread constantly. Uh, what a great way to picture the gospel in homes, though. See, they were doing this from home to home, house to house, into their, for you Greek buffs, oikos, into their, their households, their extended families, is what that really meant. And actually could be even beyond families, to servants and friends. For those of you who know the, the, uh, the uh, various stories in the books of Acts where that happened, we won't go there today. Um, but, uh, you know, they were going daily, and they were spending daily time. So it had to be when they were in their, their family circles, breaking the bread together, and they just talk about it. This is what Jesus did. His body was broken for you and I. It wasn't at that point fully into a, a formality of a weekly getting together and, and doing something 
really worshipful. It was a time to remind them of what Jesus had done. That one, by the way, is free. I just wanted to let you know that. Studies have shown, by the way, that families that sit down together for meals, sit together for meals, sit the meals together, however you say that, um, that they tend to have stronger home lives. Their children tend to stick with their faith or their belief system throughout their lives. More often, never, it's not a guarantee, but spending time at the mealtime is significant to making for a good home life. Now, if you're like many of the, my friends and, my, and, and people who have these wild work schedules, you're going to have to work at doing that. But this is the kind of, of event that was taking place there. I highly recommend it, by the way. Um, by the way, they also perform better. Children in those homes perform better in school. They make better grades. They have, uh, they're, more, they're less likely to get into real trouble. Um, Anyway, that I, that, that I thought you should know. The, the early disciples immediately, it says, devoted themselves to prayer. So they began, they, they were devoting themselves to apostles' teaching. They were devoting themselves to fellowship, getting together, koinonia. And they were devoting themselves to prayer. By the way, these are only my first point, so just don't even get anxious there. Uh, I don't think that three and I'm done. Um, they did need, they, they, this is interesting to me, you know, they knew they needed to communicate with God. For, uh, they they did, didn't need a course in prayer. They knew they needed to communicate to God. Now, we talked, we got kind of chased a rabbit like I tend to do sometimes in our missional community this week, and we got to talking about prayer pretty heavily. Uh, wasn't it all my plan? Um, but that's where we went and talked about does it change things? And it was a, it was a good conversation. And um, we decided that I'm right. It does change things. And... Um, I'm the preacher today. I can say what I want. <laughs> um, but, they, you know, these guys have been, they didn't need it. They didn't need it, of course, because prayer had been going on for 50 days. 50 days in the upper room, they'd been getting together for prayer. Could we do that? Just 50 days of prayer, you know, every day. We're going to pray. We're going to pray together, seeking what God has in mind. And they had no idea yet. Holy Spirit had yet come. Keep that in mind. You know, the, the best teaching, by the way, regard, regarding prayer is to be in the presence of someone who prays. Have you ever been in the presence of somebody who really meets with God? <laughs> Occasionally in my life, I've been with people who really meet with God. Then I know about prayer. Then I know about prayer. It's a great thing. By the way, if you're somebody who really meets with God, pray with somebody else. Get together with somebody else. Pray with them. Nothing better than your example to help them see how they can actually meet with God. Although the process of discipleship is not, discipleship is not instant, Pentecost shows us that becoming a disciple is instant. They, or instantaneous, that's what I wrote here, by the way, just so you know I do know English. If I write it, these four expressions and the ones to follow reveal the fact that when we turn to Christ and receive the instant presence of the Holy Spirit, we begin our journey as disciples. The presence of the Holy Spirit almost instantaneously bore fruit. The fruit of the Spirit and the fruit of new disciples. 
And I find that kind of amazing. They knew nothing the day before. All of a sudden, we've got super changed lives. And the rest of chapter 2 describes a rapidly growing church and its impact on the world around it. Now, the, my next two points are really brief. That's why I can get away with this today. For the second point I want to make is express your faith through communal oneness. Now, that just, that's really a fancy way of saying get together and do something that is united in purpose. There, there's a continuance built into these verses. In the same way that it says they continued in their devotion to the teachings of the apostles, they says they continued to meet together daily. So it's the same phrase, same word, actually. And, uh, and they, they continue to meet together daily to the point where they shared everything. In other words, their lives were so radically changed that personal property lost its importance. Personal property lost its importance. It didn't matter to them. You know, we are so caught up in our world of possessions that it means so much to us. It means so much. Why does it mean so much to us? This is free, by the way. I got it today. I noticed that if you make more than $50,000 a year, I read today, you're in the top 1% of the world's income. Top 1%. 25000 a year, you're in the top 10% of the world's income. 25000 a year. Anyway, I just, that was free. Just wanted you to understand, we're rich. We're rich. You thought you were poor, but you're going to walk away from here knowing you're, you're rich. By the way, if you make over $1,500 a year, you're still more richer than 58% of the world. According to, yeah, Acorn. Randy, Randy Acorn? Alcorn, Alcorn, that's it. Acorn, Alcorn, whatever his name was. Um, uh, that was free. That's not in my notes, so I don't have to know. Um, you know Christ, Christ, Jesus Christ. You know the guy you say you follow? He gave up his heavenly home. He gave his throne up, Right? He gave his throne up. He stepped down into the lowest class community he could find and still be a Jew. Born in a manger, not too nice a place. Lived his life for 33 years. And then was nailed to a cross. Never owned anything. He said the foxes have holes, the birds of the, nest have, birds of the air have nests. The Son of Man has no place to lay his head. It seems these early believers saw no other option than to release their hold on what was selfishly their own. Jesus did it. He's our Lord. I guess we're going to follow that path. It's not mine. Now, the, world used, the word used, by the way, to describe this new phenomenon is, is a compound word meaning, and that you, you musicians are going to like this. I keep looking at you because I keep thinking about this, this part. It's, it is, it's a word that it means uh, to rush along in unison. To rush along in unison. It's a musical word, and it would be well used of a symphony where everybody's Basically playing different notes, it always blows me away that they can do all of those different notes and it comes out to something absolutely beautiful, right? And so they're rushing along towards something, towards the climax, 
in unison. Are they, is there diversity? Yeah. Are they doing different things? Yes. But it's all for the one same purpose of the beautiful, uh, a beautiful music, musical piece. And this is the word used here of the unity of the people of Christ, the body of Christ, those who are following him. He said they, they were, they, the resulting words, they were one mind or one passion with one accord. Uh, it has a, it, it's, a, it's a great picture of, of the church when we think in those terms. We tend to think of the church as a gathering in one place like we are this evening. However, the church of God, the church of Jesus Christ, is, is the people of God on mission as much as gathered together, perhaps more. Perhaps more. These early disciples were gathering, by the way, not in one great assembly, but in natural communities like extended families. You see, they didn't actually get together in these massive times, except for occasionally they would go to the temple together. Interesting, that was Jewish worship. But they're, they're getting together regularly was just in these small groups. The, the joyous sharing of these it, 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 and sharing of these gatherings led to labeling them, by the way, as love feasts. Isn't that neat? Now, I lived in Russia, so I can say, talk about this as long as I don't mess up my screen here. Um, communal life, you know, Russia is really known for its communism, right? But communal life began in Russia long before communism ever took place. They actually, that was their lifestyle. And so it was just a natural move for them to go into that more officially and fully. But one of the interesting things that, that, that we had there is that if you had something and I didn't, it was fully my right, fully my right to take it from you. Not stealing, because we all are equal, and so you should all have the same things. So if you had an extra pot and I didn't, I could take it. If you were a child, and this was one of the things our children had to learn, that if you have a friend over, you need to kind of watch your stuff because you happen to have more than anybody else in this whole country seems to have. We seemed very rich there. I've told you already about the 1%, right? I don't know if we were 1%, but we were pretty close at that point. And so we had to say, you know, you've got to watch your stuff or it will disappear. And uh, many of our, our missionary friends, they, they talked, shared stories about the kids losing stuff. I don't know if our kids did. My son was always giving our stuff away, so it didn't really matter. And everywhere he went, he was like, oh, take this, take this. He made his friends that way, I think. Um, it works. You know, you can buy them off, you buy them off. Um, I should have tried that. Um, you know, our missional communities, by the way, are designed to be opportunities to give more concrete expression to our oneness in Christ. Mike, I couldn't believe you were toting that announcement. I'm watching my time here. I think I'm, I'm, I don't know where I am. That's my problem. I don't know where I am. Our missional communities, by the way, are, are designed to, to give, that, give expression to our oneness in Christ. That's really where it is. You know, a big group like this, sometimes it's hard, right? But, in, but as, we, as we come together in those smaller communities, you really get to know each other. Through our times together, we become closer to each other. We serve one another and serve the community together. That's the idea of those things. For the, for the early disciples, all this activity and excitement had a significant impact on the world around them. And I would be really remiss if I don't hit my last point. My last point is express your faith through evangelistic effectiveness. And I almost really wanted to reverse how much time I spent here, but I, want, I wanted you to get the context before you saw what happened. These new disciples lived out their newfound faith publicly. 
They were, they were automatically out in the real world talking about their faith. They didn't wait, by the way. Oh, I'll get there in a minute. They had, they had no concept of a private faith. Why should they? Why should they? Real disciples live attractive lives. You know, I mean, if you're really following Jesus, it's a, your life's good. I mean, it's, it, it, I'd, like to, I'd like to match that. I want to match that. I mean, I know some people I model after. In fact, I knew, um, I, well, you may know, have heard of Henry Blackaby, but I knew him at one time. We talked a bit. It was before he was really famous, so that, that helped, because he actually would talk to me. No, he always did. He was good about that. But his, his, I, he had five sons. Five sons, right? Five? Five sons, every one of them strong followers of Jesus. Strong followers of Jesus. Some of most, I think four out of the five are in ministry. The other one, deacon or something crazy like that. And his daughter, they had a daughter, and she married a minister. Should have known better, but she did it anyway. And, uh, and I, so I went to him and said, What's, what, I want to I know how you live. I want to know, because preacher's kids are notorious. So I want to know how, they, how he lives. And I'm grateful that I learned a lot from him because all three of my kids, only have three, are strongly following after the Lord. I want that. I want that. But they, you know, this may be a small point in words about these people, by the way. However, it is a huge point of significance. The new disciples immediately were evangelistically effective. The new disciples, uh, they, they didn't wait for someone to teach them the Roman road or how to hand out gospel booklets. They didn't t- wait for someone to teach them the theological significance of the incarnation and, and the sociological um, uh, aspects of faith. You know, I don't even know what those words mean. Sort of. I sort of know what they mean. But I do know, and they knew, Some basic concepts. I, I doubt that they understood Trinity, for instance. Really, probably didn't. Let's, let's be honest. Trinity was kind of like, they, they hashed that out a few, couple hundred years later. But I, all of those are, by the way, important and valuable. But still, they have one thing that many well-trained theologians don't have. By the way, you're all a theologian. Don't get me wrong. Every one of you is a theologian. You're either a good one or a bad one. All right? So don't, don't get me wrong. Theology is important. I just don't like all the big words because it's complicated for my pea brain. But they had fully transformed lives. They had fully transformed lives. They came to know God the Father through receiving God the Son and experiencing the life-changing presence of God the Spirit. They, they demonstrated this change in front of everyone. Their lives, their lives and other lives were changed. They didn't need all the the complicated words. They just knew Jesus. And they knew the God that sent Him, and they knew the Spirit that Jesus sent to them. It happened instantly. Now, that was just the beginning, of course. The conclusion here, by the way, is that Jesus taught certain things about a disciple. And I want to hit you with that, and then we're going to close. Jesus taught a number of things. I want to just, let's see, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven points here. Seven points and I'm done. Jesus taught that a disciple is willing to deny self and take up his cross daily and follow him. Right? Jesus taught that 
that, that, that a disciple puts Christ before self, family, and possessions. Okay? Jesus taught that a disciple is committed to Christ's teachings and is committed to world evangelism. Jesus taught that a disciple loves others as Christ loves. Jesus taught that a disciple abides in Christ, is obedient, bears fruit, glorifies God, has joy, and lives for the brethren, the brothers and sisters in Christ. So are you a disciple? Let's pray. Father, we come before you. I want to thank you for your word. Lord, we want to be disciples. Lord, help us to live our lives as real disciples, real followers of you. Lord, we thank you so much because if it hadn't been done there, I don't think we'd believe it could be done. Gosh, it was done by those who knew so little, and you've given us so much. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.